Hello and welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we are working our way through John Frame's book, uh, Apologetics, a Justification of Christian Belief. And we are in chapter five, and he is working through some theistic arguments in chapter five. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, we say this might seem odd, right? Because I thought he was a presuppositionalist. So what's he doing <laughs> dealing with these various theistic arguments? But and, he's and trying he's to show that. And he's quoted Thomas Aquinas too. So I'm, I'm yeah, pretty sure he's outside. That, right? Whoa, yeah. Whoa, we disavow. Yeah. <laughs> but what he's trying to show is that these arguments work and, and they can move in a direction that will, that will help us. So he doesn't want to throw anything out with regard to arguments for the um, existence of God. So we had... Um, just finished what he called the epistemological argument, which is which was similar to the moral argument. And then we looked at what he called the teleological argument, which is the argument from design or purpose. And he kind of walked us through that and he suggested that that was similar to his epistemological argument. Uh, so you can look back in the previous tapes and, and get a feel for exactly what he was talking about there. What we want to do now is moved to this next, uh, I guess, kind of um, of argument here. And this one, he says, is based on causality. And this is the cosmological argument. Now, again, we might say, well, wait a minute. I thought he was a, you know, a presupposition. What's he doing using these various arguments? Well, um, stick with us here and we'll see how he uses these arguments from his presuppositional perspective. He says the cosmological argument is somewhat broader than the teleological argument. While the teleological argument focuses on one phenomena right within the world, that of purpose or design, the cosmological argument asserts that every finite reality, whether it appears to be designed or not, must be dependent on an infinite God simply because of its finitude, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, finitude. And so, Notice he's suggesting that this argument is broader than the teleological argument because it looks at everything that is, you know, contingent, we might say, or has uh, been a two. Right. So, you know, you can, uh, well, what about this one? Well, it goes back to this one. Well, what about that one? You go back and back and back. And at some point, you're either going to have to admit that we've never gotten to where we're at because you go back infinity <laughs> or that there's, there's something there at the beginning and it doesn't seem like it could be finite. It has to be infinite. Well, okay. Th but there are many types of cosmological arguments. And in fact, I, I, I think in your introductory uh, philosophy class, you're probably going to hit about five of them or so. Uh, but he says he will consider here the, only the argument from cause. Belief in causes is an aspect of a commitment to reason. Roughly speaking, causes are the reason and reasons are causes. Okay. Uh, to deny so that's, I, I think that's an important part of what he's going to say here. So we need to really hone in on that because he's going to use that over and over again. Reasons are causes and causes are reasons. Right. right Why there. did that happen? Our uh, dude, Franz Ferdinand, was assa assassinated, led to the uh, start of World War One. Well, why did that happen? Well, that cause was the reason for the assassination. And then you go back. Well, what about the black man? What about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the formation of the group? What, what about all the alliances? And where do those come from? Well, you're going to get causes, which are the reasons. 
So to deny that is to claim that some events are irrational happenings. And, and again, it's not a, uh, 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 it, it's, it's a praxeology uh, uh, understanding. It's not that we have uh, perfect rationality that we're, we're saying, okay, well, two plus two is close to five, so we'll, we'll round up, uh, but it's really four. It, it's not saying that uh, it, they're irrational in the sense that uh, it, it, it's, it's done without uh, perfect thought, but it's just done with, with no thought, with, with nothing happened that caused these things to come about. That's where the irrational uh, happenings come from. But if some event took place place without a reason, how could reason know it? For example, how could reason prove such a negative as this event has no cause at all? Well, is, isn't that a cause too? <laughs> <laughs> so it has no cause at all. So wh where did it come from? Well, it didn't. So it, it just it just popped into existence. Well, okay, no side wants to say that. Well, to prove that, one would have to assume and uh, to assure oneself that all possible causes have been ruled out. Uh, the, the, the classic line of, uh, I know there's no tea in China. Well, how do I know that? I have to have perfect knowledge of every square inch of China, and I have to have a governmental system that goes into people's houses and checks for tea and the little tea cozies and, and make sure that uh, that's not happening. Uh, and, and that's when I can make the claim there's absolutely no tea in China. Right. Well, and so he's, yeah, this is this whole issue of trying to prove a negative, right? Right. <laughs> right. Which is it's, virtually impossible. Which is really hard. I, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the watermelon is blue until I cut into it. Pro, pro, prove <laughs> me wrong. Okay. So uh, to, 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 to uh, assure oneself that all possible causes have been ruled out and to reach that conclusion would require omniscience, perfect knowledge, absolute perfect knowledge uh, in, in order to say that would be the case. Right. In other words, to prove a, if we're going to try and prove a negative, he's suggesting the only way that we can do that is we would have to know everything. Right. So what is there? There may be tea under a small rock in China somewhere <laughs> that we've never observed. Right. But we'd have so we'd have to know everything in order to know that there is no tea in China. Right. And that's that's the point he's trying to make. He says further, the nature of reason is to inquire after causes. Right. So notice he's trying to link this issue of reason and causes. Right? And if reason does not find the cause, it does not conclude that there is no cause. Rather, it looks further or else it sets the problem aside for future investigation. Yeah, of we, course, I there mean, must be. We, you know, I, I was going to say, we, we, yeah, we even do this in, in science. But, you know, OK, we, we need to find the structure of all basic uh, life. OK, here's the atom. It's a proton, it's an electron and a neutron. I wonder what protons are made of, and so you know, we're the we're the we're we're the kids that get the next level of 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 Wi-Fi signal that's faster. Well, I wonder if they can be faster. So we just ask, you know, okay, well, what's the basic building block of all life? Atoms. Okay, what makes up atoms? And so we're always looking for down the line, but there's there there's no understanding of of like a stopping point. We're always looking for that next. Well, why is why is the structure of the proton what it is? And so we'll just keep going from there. Or we set this problem aside until we come back to it later. Right. <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, of course, he says there is one exception to this rule. Once reason finds what it regards as a complete cause, then the final and ultimate explanation for the phenomena under consideration um, has been found. And so inquiry can cease there. Right. 
but we can't even do that. It, 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 it's rare. But those who claim that some events in the world are uncaused are, to that extent, irrationalists. Like all rationalists, they run into problems when they try to argue their case rationally. For there is no way to prove rationally, apart, of course, from divine revelation, that any particular event in the world is causeless. This thing just happened. Well, okay, but how, how is that the case? Even when we talk about the Big Bang, and I think even Lawrence Krauss has, has uh, uh, argued against his own position that uh, uh, <laughs> not, nothing happened and nothing exploded. Well, he goes, well, when I, when I mean nothing, I don't mean nothing, nothing. I mean, there was something that happened. So even then, nothing, isn't, I mean, nothing would, would be a, a, an initial starting point. But then you would be an irrationalist. But you'd say, oh, well, you know, in this vacuum, we, we, we see these particles uh, 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 pop in and out of existence. So that's exactly what happened in the Big Bang. Well, but there has to be something in order for it to pop in and out of existence of. And so what, what's there? And so, again, you're asking a, a follow-up question of what were the reasons and what were the causes? Uh, or, or you become a rationalist. And if some events uh, are causeless, how could it have happened? From nothing comes nothing, as the saying goes. Furthermore, if one event in the world lacks a cause, then the world as a whole lacks a cause. And if the world as a whole is without reason, then a rationalist triumph and us having a conversation like, <laughs> what do you want to do today? Uh, well, let's do these things. Uh, why do you want to do those things? Well, hold on. We're rationalists. We're just going to do things. And, and even that is an argument. <laughs> yeah. And so he says, causes gives a cause gives a reason why things happen. The idea of cause. It's a reason why things happen. And so once that intuition is honored and irrationalism is excluded, then the cosmological argument, he says, can begin to make some progress. That every event in the world has a cause means that everything in the world happens for some reason. But suppose that there is no first cause, no uncaused cause at the beginning of the process. Well, he says, in that case, there is no complete explanation, no complete reason why any event took place. But, you know, if, if we don't have a cause, then we don't have a complete explanation. If there is no first cause, the process of explanation just kind of keeps on going and going, and an infinite regress for which there is no ending point uh, takes place. And that's what you were alluding to earlier, right? right? We just keep going and going to the next thing and to the next thing. He says, but if there is no end, then there is no cognitive rests, is what he says. So we, you know, I guess, what does that mean? We, we need a rest for our brain, <laughs> cognitive rest. We'd have to keep going and going to try to find an explanation. He says, you just keep going on and on from one particular reason to another. And your quest never ends. You never reach the complete reason that you set out to find. And thus, in the end, irrationalism, if you can never reach the complete reason, then irrationalism uh, wins out. And there is no final explanation for anything. And so if there's no final explanation, what he's suggesting here is we're left in the kind of the bog of irrationalism because you know we have this infinite regress and no final explanation. Yeah, there's a uh, a great essay. It's it's uh, 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 an econ uh, economic uh, essay by Leonard Reed called "I Pencil," where uh, he's he's making the point 
that uh, no one no one in the world knows how to build a pencil because of all the things that have to come about in order for just a simple pencil to come about. The rubber, the the graphite, the wood. Uh, well, there, you know, you have the wood. Well, then you have to go back to uh, the the manufacturer of of the wood. Well, then uh, he doesn't. He's not the one that cuts down the tree. He doesn't know how to cut down the proper tree uh, to, to do it right. Well, the person that uses the ax doesn't uh, know how to make that ax. He knows what ax to use, but he doesn't know how to make it and so on and so forth. And so, but pencils exist. So there, there, there's a cognitive endpoint, but where's the start of it? The start of it, even, even in the I pencil, uh, uh, essay has to go all the way back to a first cause. So even there, uh, no one knows how to make the world, the universe, except for maybe, Maybe one person, one being the guy who made the pencil, the guy who made the pencil, the first pencil, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> the non-Christian rationalist is, is here in a quandary for his uh, motivations, press him in two directions simultaneously. We got him mm-hmm. on the ropes. This is where we yeah. want him, the two ropes. <laughs> on one hand, he wants to affirm that there are uh, complete explanations of events. Therefore, he wants to honor a first cause. On the other hand, if the rationalist honors the first cause, he will have to concede his rational quest and submit his mind to the conclusion implicit in the first cause. There is a first cause. I want to believe in that first cause. If there is one, so that's the one. But he does not want to cease his rational quest. He wants always to have the privilege of asking, well, why? But if he denies the possibility of a first cause, he becomes indistinguishable from the rationalist. So in the end, we are forced to choose between belief in a first cause and irrationalism. Ah, that's exactly where we want to be because we have an answer to the first cause. We can have an argument about, well, what does that first cause look like? But if we get them to the first cause, um, man, we're halfway there. Right. All right. Good. And there is an end point to that argument. (laughs) Exactly. So now it kind of meets an objection here to all of this, right? Okay, fine. First cause, that kind of stuff. Nevertheless, he says... One might well ask, well, if it's possible for God to be self-existence and self-explanatory and causeless, and that is to be the first cause and an ultimate reason, why can't the world be the first cause, right? The self-existent, causeless thing. He says, if we may end our causal inquiry with God, why not stop with the world and be done with it? So we just stop at the world. The world itself is its own self-existence first cause, right? Well, it says the answer here is that the world is not self-existence and self-explanatory. It's not causes, right? It's not an ultimate reason. We know this, he says, by the reasoning of our moral and epistemological arguments that we saw earlier. And so the ultimate source of moral norms, right, if we go back to that argument, of the norms of thought of logic is personal and not impersonal. But if God is the ultimate source of these norms, then he is also the ultimate source of the world, and therefore we're right back to God, right? So if the world is, uh, you know, itself the first cause or the self-existent, self-explanatory, causeless type of thing, well, then we're right back to the moral and epistemological arguments. We can't have a personal uh, existence because the world is not personal. Right. And without personal existence, then we don't have these other norms that we need in order for rationality and logic and person, personal personality and that sort of thing to take place. 
Right. Even with the idea that sometimes, uh, I think Hawking was one, uh, but others have this uh, always expanding and contracting universe that has been going on forever. But they don't actually mean forever because at some point the universe didn't expand back. It expanded out and and you still have the 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 the, the point of view where where time is a factor and and you need a first cause with even within that model of expanding and contracting expanding and contracting yeah so that kind of oscillation model also breaks down with our known knowledge of uh of uh, the laws of uh, logic for instance i'm sorry the laws of the physical universe right for instance when it begins to collapse nothing that we know of stops it <laughs> right. it, it, it results in a black hole and nothing can come out of that and so it even doesn't even, you know, match with the laws as we know them now. Yeah. You call that special pleading, I believe, is, is what, <laughs> uh, what what that is. <laughs> All right. But notice that the final analysis, uh, the cosmological argument is epistemological in character. Hey, look, we're, we're, we're going back. And then from epistemology, I bet you there's a moral, a moral question <laughs> here. The question about rational causes is really the same as the question about rational order. It shows how, if we assume that the world is rational, we must assume that God is the author of reason. The search for causes and reasons will be self-defeating unless it is willing to rest ultimately in God. And look at that. That's exactly what the Christian worldview says. Right, exactly. So we get back to this, you know, to the basics here with regard to what he was trying to show. All right, so that is the cosmological argument. The next argument here is uh, is the ontological argument. So this one is based on being, being, right? So he says the ontological argument is in some ways the most fascinating <laughs> and exasperating, right, of all the classical arguments, right? Uh, and and because there's various versions of, like the other arguments, there's various versions of this this kind of argument and that sort of thing. But it is kind of uh, exasperating, and we'll see that as we go through here. It's fascinating, but exasperating. So it gives us a, a simplified, uh, you know, kind of formulation of the ontological argument. And it goes something like this. Premise one, God has all perfection. That's kind of the definition of who God is. Premise two, existence is a perfection. And so the conclusion is, therefore, God exists, Right. So if God has all the perfections and existence is a perfection, then God must exist. So this is a, you know, a valid deductive argument. Right. Right? Yeah. right. So that's kind of the basis of the ontological argument. And that was that was the first one that that I uh, interacted with in philosophy 101 class. And I was like, I'm hooked. That's the one. <laughs> well, the earliest critic of this proof was the monk uh, Ganillo. And he said that the argument uh, could prove not only a perfect being such as God, but a perfect anything. I think a perfect island is is what he came up with, uh, and you use the same premise there. Uh, if if uh, this uh, uh, a perfect island has all perfections, existence is perfect. Therefore, a perfect island exists. Type deal. For example, one could argue, uh, yeah, a, a perfect island would have all perfections, and since existence is perfection, a perfect island must exist. Anselm who kind of popularized the, uh, the, the the ontological argument here, replies, in effect, that a perfect island does not have all perfections. It is, after all, only an island, an island <laughs> unto itself. And therefore, it has only those perfections proper to islands. 
The ontological argument will therefore work in only one case, the case of a perfect being who has all perfections in limitless measure. Yeah. And so this first objection he doesn't think works because the idea of perfection only God is an exception with regard to finite things. And so it only works with an infinite being, right? So, uh, you know, for instance, you can even think of it like this. So think about what the perfect argument would look like. And then you ask yourself, you can, so ask several people. So think of the perfect island. What is the temperature of the perfect island during the day? Well, I do this in, in classes and students tell me <laughs> 80 and 75 and, you know, whatever, 90, whatever, right? And I said, what about at night? Well, 60 and, you know, 72 and that kind of stuff. And what we find is virtually nobody agrees right? What the perfect island is, right? It's pretty difficult to come up with the perfect island. Uh, and so the point here is that finite things seem to be impossible with regard to perfection. But of course, God is different than, than finite things. That's the idea, I think, that, he, that he's trying to say. here. Uh, another objection says that, um, um, you know, that what we're doing here is jumping from concept to reality, kind of like a, a quasi-Platonic type of idea, right? You have the concept, and therefore it must exist somewhere out there <laughs> in the, the world of forms. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. It says that since our concept of God includes his existence, he must exist in reality. But that does not follow. Plato, he says, to be sure, thought that our concepts are recollections, right? We're recalling, so recollections of the ultimate forms of things, and therefore that all our concepts, especially those of ultimates, have correlates in the world of forms, right? So basically, we were in the world of forms before we were born. We got stuck in this body, <laughs> right, when we were born. And so, but we can recall the world of forms, right, in our previous existence, Plato argues, and therefore that's how we're able to call all of these various different objects, I mean, that look different, that may be different colors, some have three uh, uh, legs, some have four legs, but we can, we can recognize that they're all chairs because they share the concept of chairness, right? Right. And so we can capture that particular form and recollect it. Well, notice he says, despite Plato's rather mythological presentation of his view, he thinks that his actual rationale for the world of forms is something like this. Human thought presupposes a criteria. And that's what uh, uh, Plato thought, which cannot be simply derived from our sense experience. So somehow it goes beyond our sense experience, our, our human thought, and it presupposes something that exists beyond our sense experience. Yeah, or it so has to be innate in our share. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. is is the idea here. Right, right. So it has to be innate in us. That we have to image it in some way, maybe. So, yeah. So Anselm says that our concept of the source of all perfection, the being who has all perfections, must be objective not merely a figment of our own thinking. Even if Anselm is under the influence of Plato here, he says, uh, Frame says he cannot deny the cogency of his basic reasoning. This argument, like all others, is reducible to his earlier argument of moral values. Hey, look at that. We can get back to the moral argument as yeah. well. Yeah, good. 
So another kind of objection he wants to raise with regard to this argument, right? Um, this one was raised by Immanuel Kant. And Kant thought that Anselm was uh, misunderstood the nature of existence by treating, notice, existence as a perfection of God. So right. making existence a character or a trait or, you know, part of who God is. In Kant's view, existence is not a perfection, not even a property, right? For instance, Kant says uh, that, you know, uh, existence doesn't add anything to our concept of something. So he thinks that uh, Anselm here has erred by making existence one of God's uh, attributes or properties, right? For instance, I wouldn't say that, you know, this book is on the table and it exists. Well, no, by means of saying it's on the table, we're assuming that it's existence. Existence isn't kind of a property that we add in and up and, uh, uh, you know, above the book being on the table. It's part of what we assume there. And so Kant thinks that Anselm was kind of do this with regard to his characterization of God, adding existence as a property. And Kant doesn't think that that works. However, Kant admits that his financial position is better w with real dollars than with possible ones. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, so monopoly money <laughs> is not as good as real money that exists in the real world. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's how we got the Federal Reserve System of the day. And, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so it, it's better to have real money than full money. Uh, so existence <laughs> is therefore different from other properties and pre uh, predicates in some ways, but not in the sense that it makes no difference to, to the objects that have it. Uh, again, when you talked about the book, uh, it's, um, it's an implied uh, thing. The, uh, the book is on the table. It exists because it's, it's on the table. You're, uh, it's a reference uh, uh, to it. Yeah. And I know the difference between, uh, uh, for example, uh, Secretariat and Black Beauty, two horses. Thus, it seems that Kant's objection to the ontological argument fails. Yeah, notice Secretariat, Secretariat existed. Black right. Beauty didn't exist. It was right. an imaginary, you know, kind of story about a, a horse. And so clearly we're using existence there as predicates, which Kant says we're not allowed to do. Right. But we do that all the time, right? Uh, especially when we're thinking about fictitious types of beings and creatures and that sort of thing, right? right? Horses exist, unicorns don't exist. There, we've used it, right, in the way that concept we couldn't use it, but we do that all the time, right? Right. All right, so now he wants to turn to the last difficulty with this argument, the term perfection itself. Remember, this argument turns on this notion of perfection. Mm -hmm. So, um, he says, this is a fairly slippery term. <laughs> is existence a perfection as the argument implies? And so he kind of gives a counterexample. To yeah. this. He says, well, it's not a, a perfection in Buddhism, for instance, right? Where nirvana is explained as a form of nothingness, right? And so, no, it's not in Buddhism. Nothingness is the perfection there, right? Right. And since nothing is there, then there's no there to be there. Right. <laughs> but in Christianity, it uh, perfection is a, a perfection where God saw all that he made and declared everything to be good. 
In other words, the ontological argument proves the biblical God only if it presupposes distinct, uh, distinctively Christian values and a Christian view of existence. Substitute other values and you change the conclusion. This is why the ontological argument has been used to defend many different kinds of God. Right, right. So notice um, in Christianity, God saw all that he had made brought into existence. But it doesn't say being. Declared, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like he <laughs> presupposed it. Exactly. And therefore he declared everything that was good. So right. there good value but coming into being is uh is uh it's good it's a perfection right remarkably he says the prayer which anselms uh formulates his argument that is the ontological argument identifies him as a sort of christian presuppositionist surprise surprise right what? so now he's going to adopt the anselms <laughs> he, he indicates that uh that is anselm does that he's not really in doubt as to god's existence but he is seeking a simple way to prove the god whom um you know in his heart he believes and loves so yes i think in a way he can make this argument and some is assuming that God exists, and now he's considering a way to, to, to show that. He seeks not to understand that I may believe, but to believe that I might understand. And so faith here is the basis for understanding rather than the product of it, he tells us. And so what's his conclusion then with regard to the ontological argument? Well, he says that his conclusion is that either the ontological argument is a Christian presuppositional argument. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> Thus, it, it's, uh, you know, reducible to his earlier moral arguments that we saw right. previously, or the ontological argument is, is worthless, right? It's not working. Right. So that's kind of where he leaves uh, the ontological argument. And by the way, his discussion of all of these various uh, theistic arguments. So we've kind of worked our way through a bunch of these theistic arguments and gotten frames take on all of these kinds of arguments. Right. So if you're feeling bad about your prayers, just know that Anselm with a single prayer upended uh, the entirety of Western thought and uh, uh, added value uh, that uh, we would scarcely even approach in our Prayer is a lifetime. powerful thing. It's a powerful <laughs> thing. <There you> go. <laughs> All right, well, that's the end of chapter five. And uh, next, uh, we get into apologetics as proof, proving the gospel. Uh, but uh, we're going to then prove the gospel. So, uh, all right, we've, we've proven uh, the existence of God. And now uh, we just uh, move on to uh, the gospel presentation of uh, Jesus taking our sins and uh, us, his righteousness, and uh, there's salvation. So an easy uh, chapter uh, to delve into next. Again, uh, all, all uh, the, the, the full episodes released, and then um, uh, from here, uh, individual episodes are released, uh, uh, individual sections of this episode is released through the week. So if you uh, want to go back and uh, hit any other part, um, uh, but also, uh, as you can tell, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey, uh, there are uh, uh, time codes uh, on, on where the sections are uh, to head to. So you can do that there, or... Download it again, listen to it, listen to it with a friend. Download it on all of their devices as a joke. We don't care. Uh, it's it's all about the numbers. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate uh, everyone who uh, who reads along with us and, and uh, uh, 
uh, sending us nice things and and uh, nice comments and even not the nice comments at least you're watching it and interacting with with uh, what's being discussed and uh, ultimately uh, uh, th that's the that's the first cause uh, the 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 first thing that we want or the first reason so uh, <laughs> that's it for uh, this episode and uh, we'll we just say uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time see you next time.